Hi, everyone. This episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. So click on the URL in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And as a heads up, the link will go live Monday the 13th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So with that, let's get started. I mean, I think the most important part that they need to know is that there's an algorithm and there are these subset of meds that you're going to use depending on their symptom onset, their um, other factors of contraindicating meds or QTC, and then their O2 requirement. And these are going to affect which meds you choose. Yes, there is an algorithm you probably need to know, and it's different based on whichever hospital you're at, who gets the Plaquenil, who gets the Remdesivir, what daily labs your epidemiologist wants you to get. And because that is so unique, what we're going to focus on today is focusing on the practical tips in terms of taking care of patients with COVID-19. And to help me do this, I'm joined by... Hey guys, I'm Dr. Tim Rowe, a third-year resident at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers! (laughs) Our routines have changed so much in the past month, and as we learn more about COVID, we're each going to have to adjust and readjust our practice patterns. And probably readjust another time as we learn more. The very humbling process. I think as hospitals are kind of hitting their surges now, We were initially thinking of gearing this episode towards outpatient clinicians who are getting called into COVID floors. But the more we produced this episode, the more there were tons of inpatient clinicians who said, no, this is helpful for all of us to hear how each other are organizing our days and other tips on what effective care looks like on COVID floors. And so to do that, we sat down with Dr. Sheetal Desai, a hospitalist at NYU Brooklyn, who's been on the front lines for maybe more than a month now, taking care of an incredible volume of patients. And she's someone, hands down, I respect as a clinician. We also chatted with Dr. Eric Lamott, a hospitalist at University of Washington Medical Center, to get his practical tips after spending some time on his hospital's COVID wards. After talking to them both, we came up with 10 practical tips or areas of hospital medicine to be mindful of when you're taking care of patients with COVID infection. And we want to fully acknowledge that, you know, they're going to share their take, their strategies around these 10 areas and their tips. But... I'm sure everyone has a different approach and it looks different based on what environment you're in. So please, please tweet us if you have any other tips that you want to add or comment on the episode's Quarium page so we can all learn from each other. And with that, let's get started. Tip number one, have a consistent daily entrance and exit strategy of what works for you and the resources at your hospital. My day usually starts by, I I organize my day the night before. So I have my clean scrubs ready to go. I always wear a pair of clothes underneath my clean scrubs and I get to work. Um, At work, I have one specific bag, which is a strictly a work bag and a work jacket. So I do not bring any of those items into my home and my shoes also never come into the home. So at the end of the day, I remove my dirty scrubs, put them in a dirty Ziploc bag that I labeled dirty, or you could do a plastic bag, whatever, but I just wanted something that's sealed. Um, But everyone does it differently. You could just hold them and take them downstairs. Um, And I then dispose of the dirty scrubs and pick up a new pair for the next day. Um, I then take wipes and I clean all of my stuff, uh, my phone, my headphones, my water bottle, my, uh, my ID, my keys, my wallet, everything that I've used throughout the day gets cleaned and put in a Ziploc bag and then into my bigger bag. And then I head home, um, and 
when I come home, I directly put my clothes into the wash after washing my hands and then I shower immediately. Too much information, but it is not too much information. All of it's important. And some have even mentioned not wearing jewelry or always tying up their hair when they go to work. Whatever that routine is, I think it just gives some mental peace that, hey, I'm doing something consistently to protect myself and the people around me. And once you get into the hospital, tip number two is to prep your morning routine and set yourself up for success. Now, each day might look a little bit different, especially as hospitals reach surge capacity. There might be people on your team from other specialties like ortho, neurology, podiatry. So you could find yourself working with someone who is not quite as familiar with the medicine wards as you are. It may save you trouble later on to start off by setting expectations and maybe even explicitly discuss your call me criteria, which could go something like this. If they come to a patient that looks sick, and when I say sick, I tell them vital signs are abnormal, they're very tachycardic, they're in respiratory distress, the nurse is telling you they're concerned, you need to call me right away. Those are the things that I usually try to outline. Um, Or if something you just feel doesn't feel right, call me trust your instincts. If they're feeling overwhelmed, they need to call you. And that's really like, it's going to be from day to day, but I think they just need to know that they're supported and that you're there to help them as much as they're there to help you. I would argue that open communication and expectation setting is always helpful, even when you're just working with your usual team of medicine residents. And then it's all about triaging. Dr. Desai stressed the importance of having open communication with your whole team, triaging tasks based on skill set. Is this going to be the person who takes six to eight of our stable follow-up patients, one or two new admissions, or are they going to be the person to help me coordinate the discharges for the day? So typically the patients who are on the non-rebreathers, whose respiratory rates are high, those are the ones that I specifically see. Fever does not always mean the sickest. It's really, I think, the respiratory status that to me entitles that being the patient that I have to prioritize to see and giving the more stable nasal cannula patients to the APPs and PAs and residents that are not as experienced because sending them into a room with a very distressed patient is probably going to be very overwhelming to them. Or we go together. As we pointed out, each morning's routine can be different based on the resources you have. While taking on an attending-only COVID team, Dr. Lamott had a very different morning routine than his usual. But to minimize time spent in PPE, he took advantage of first calling into patient room phones to gather new information. The flow of my day was pretty different when I was on the COVID service than uh, a usual hospitalist service. So I decided to try to do as much as I could uh, for my patients before doing my rounds. Um, So I really put off my morning rounds until like 11 a.m. or maybe even a little bit later to just try to do all my pre-rounding, try to call patients on the phone for those patients who I could call to kind of get some history from them and update them on the plan. I found it helpful to be able to do that, to be able to take better notes um, without having to worry about my PPE and uh, got in touch with nurses to make sure we were kind of on the same page about the plan. The room phones were also helpful for non-English speaking patients. He called the interpreter line from his workroom and then asked the translator to call his patient's room on three-way. This seemed to minimize the background noise, especially in negative pressure rooms. And organizing his morning like this had one more unexpected benefit. And also a lot of the patient's stories are pretty similar in terms of both the timing and the symptoms. And so it can be a little bit difficult if you have a lot of patients all infected with COVID to keep their stories straight. So it was really helpful for me to be able to just go through a pretty comprehensive review of systems with all of them and be able to take notes over the phone. Yeah, I guess it'd be kind of hard to take notes on your list while you're in full PPE and even harder to keep it clean, which I'm a big note taker too. So I really appreciate that point. 
The caveat here is that most of these patients are pretty sick and might not always be up to holding the phone up while they're talking. But if your patient can, and your hospital is set up well for this, it may be more efficient to call patients from your workroom, plug their subjective updates into your progress note, and save the middleman on that scrappy old list. So when you're done setting expectations with your team for that day, and maybe if you're like Dr. Lamont and you're able to call into patients' room ahead of time, now it's time to actually see your patients and put on that personal protective equipment, PPE. And that leads us to tip number three. Have a strategy to conserve your PPE and other protective equipment. Again, this can be very hospital dependent, but here's what Dr. Desai does. The other part is just this whole conservation of PPE. So first thing for my PPE, I always, um, you can protect your phone, number one, in the bag that nurses have a clear plastic bag that are always on the station where they think they put specimens in and your phone can go in there and you can actually type through it and you can hear through it. It's a little bit harder, but you can actually type through it. Um, and then I have, everyone gets a brown bag and I use one brown bag for my N95 and my face shield. And I do not put anything else in that bag. I also put my N95 in a separate plastic bag within that brown bag to protect my N95 on its own. That's not something everybody does, but that's something I do. Um, and I never mix that bag with anything else. And following that PPE hygiene strictly can be quite time consuming. From what I understand from an infection control standpoint, you are supposed to clean your face shield from room to room. I feel like people are still going from room to room without cleaning the face shield technically because you're still going from COVID to COVID to COVID to COVID. If you go from a COVID to a negative, that's a problem. Like you shouldn't take your gear into a COVID negative room. One thing Dr. Desai does to conserve at least her gowns or her gloves is triaging between patients who are on droplet precautions. I think what's really helpful is that if you, once you get to know a patient, you can't, you don't always need to go into the room. And I think that's the way that you can conserve PPE. So if I get to know a patient on the subsequent days, if they're sitting in the room by the door, I talk to them from the door. Um, if I feel that it's strictly respiratory that we're dealing with, listening to their lungs is not that helpful to me. Um, I will talk to them through the from the doorway. I will put my my face N95 and my face shield on. I will not put on a gown, and I will talk to them from the door. And that was a great way to see them, talk to them, let them know that I'm there for them. But I didn't have to use a gown and gloves or gear that we're trying to conserve. Um, so that was something I thought was really helpful. Keep in mind, though, we can't do this for our patients on airborne precautions. But I just want to highlight how much I appreciate her honesty about triaging between who needs a lung exam and who doesn't. This is something that many hospitalists around the country have said that they're thinking about, too. Which exams are actually going to make a difference in management for the day? We were really pressing the hospitalists to give us their routine of how they organize their day, but their message was clear. There really is no routine day on the COVID floors. I think the, the hard part about saying that every day is the same is because in this era with COVID, it's not because so unfortunately patients are super sick when you walk in and it totally messes up the flow of your day or there are routine every five minutes um, on your unit. Uh, so I think it's, it's having a general sense of how you want to structure your day and then you're going to have to make accommodations for when all these hiccups come along, because you can say you want to see all your patients between nine and 11 or seven and 10. And then one sick patient takes up the 
two to three hours in the morning. Let's listen to Dr. Desai talk about rolling with the punches, particularly with tip number four, brush up on next steps for decompensating patients. Remember, if you're on your own, it definitely takes more time. But when you have a resident and intern and other people to support you, you, it shouldn't take that long. But if I get called that a patient's in distress, the biggest issue is one, getting the upgrades to with the oxygen that you need. You need to get respiratory. Someone needs to bring you high flow. Someone needs to uh, get that up there. Then you find out you can't get through to respiratory because respiratory is calling going to all these RRTs. Then you're trying to get critical care and critical care is busy. So they'll say, well, we'll get, we will get there when we get there. So you're managing this patient who's not doing as well. Um, I, in the beginning, uh, at first was like, what, what am I going to do? I totally agree with you. I felt helpless. I felt how something I got to be able to do something. If you find yourself stepping into a role you never trained for, remember you're not alone. This goes for outpatient docs who suddenly find themselves on the wards, but also for hospitalists who may have forgotten some of the finer points of inpatient respiratory care. A lot of what we're somewhat doing is what a respiratory therapist does because you don't, there's not enough respiratory therapists. So sometimes you're going to be titrating and deescalating O2 um, in, a, in something that you've never done before. But I think the good thing is for the outpatient docs, you're not going to be alone and hopefully you'll be paired with someone who's experienced with that and done that. And you can do nasal cannula to non rebreather because nursing can do that. Nursing can do that for you. They can, you ask the nurse, I wanted this patient on a non rebreather and they can set that up for you. It's the high flow and the BiPAP that really require the respiratory therapist. Okay. So maybe listening to Dr. Desai talk about her decompensating patients caused your blood pressure to spike a little bit. And perhaps you're now frantically scrambling the internet for helpful respiratory care tips. Yeah, I am diaphoracing a little bit there, Tim. Um, so with that, why don't you kind of run us through some of the basic oxygen support uh, that you think about? Sure, I'd be happy to. I break down oxygen support like this. First, standard nasal cannula will get you up to 6 liters a minute. Once you max out on that, I'd reach for non-rebreather oxygen, which gets you up to 15 liters a minute. Next comes high-flow nasal cannula, and that'll get you between 30 and 60 liters per minute at 50 to 100% FiO2. But there's a couple other reasons I like high-flow. It allows for inline air humidification. It also lets your patient continue to eat and to talk, and it gives you a little bit of peep. Well, that's a nice bonus. What about CPAP or BiPAP? Actually, I've heard some hospitals are actually even trying to avoid those oxygen support systems. Yeah, that's right. It's probably because CPAP or BiPAP actually have not been shown to reduce the risk of intubation relative to high flow, and they also may carry an increased risk of COVID transmission through increased aerosolization. Mm, that is good to know. But while taking care of their immediate respiratory needs, it's also important not to get locked into COVID mode. I kind of still did what I normally do with my patients. I still look at their x-ray. I reorder an x-ray. I look to make sure that I'm not missing something else. Uh, I think about diuretics. Uh, I think about, um, you know, is there anything, am I missing? The patient's been here for 10 days. They're still spiking temps. Do I need to consider bacterial pneumonia? So these are all things that I'm still doing um, in addition to helping them get more oxygen requirements, oxygen need, needs met, and also asking for help to move. Part of the biggest, one of the biggest problems is that patients can't always move. There's not enough ICU beds. There's no step-down beds. The patient is still on your floor, on your service, and you have to take care of them and manage them in that situation. This is an important tip even for your patients without COVID. Stay open-minded about what else could be going on. Do they have a superimposed bacterial infection, or is that worsening tachycardia and tachypnea from new clot? 
And remember guys, especially while you're juggling many tasks at once and trying to keep an open mind, closed loop communication is key. It's also one of the most challenging things because you're multitasking so many things all at the same time. I always circle back to make sure that they're being done. So you always have to circle back to check in, hey, was that done? Or I sometimes will ask them, please let me know that when it's taken care of so that I know that I can, I can cross that off my list or that it's been addressed. Okay, so when you're not putting out fires on patients who have worsening respiratory distress, there's going to be those follow-up patients with COVID-19 that you're going to see. And each hospital has a different approach. And that leads us to tip number five. Develop a list of things to check in about daily in your subjective convos with those stable follow-up patients. With COVID, it's respiratory. So the respiratory I hit first, making sure that their breathing has improved. How is their cough? How are they feeling with their fevers? Um, I really encourage patients to be prone. So if I, I, I remind them that that position is the best position for them to be lying in if they can tolerate it. Because uh, a lot of times you'll tell them and then they come back in and they're not prone. Um, and then I always talk about if they're eating, how much they're drinking, and what's going on with their bowels. Because with COVID, there's a lot of, and the meds, you're getting a lot of diarrhea and other symptoms. So our usual standard giving everybody Miralax is really not the best standard anymore because a lot of patients are having GI distress and then you give them Miralax and it makes them even feel even worse. So that helps me to decide, you know, if they should get that or not. Um, And urine, are they making urine? Dr. Lamont had a similar list of questions that he would ask over the phone. Uh, when he was calling into those patient rooms. But when he would go to see those patients, he would also note their work of breathing. So for example, he might have a patient that says, hey, doc, I'm feeling less or short of breath on the phone. But then when he saw them, he would see that they're gasping for air every other sentence. And that was something objective he also noted to see their progress. He also had one other trick up his sleeve in terms of tracking changes in their respiratory status. I found it helpful to try to target an O2 stat of 92%, which would you know, encourage nurses to to down titrate the oxygen so that it was easier for me to tell how much oxygen is someone really needing crucially. And then also to have a little bit earlier notification if someone is getting worse. I wanted to be paged anytime someone's oxygen needs were going up. And I think that if someone's satting at 97% on three liters and then later they're satting at 90 three or 94%, you might not get paged if that's happening, even though someone's getting a little bit worse. Noted. I'll definitely try that next time I'm on the floors. After you're done seeing the patients on your list, you're probably getting called for new admissions, which leads to tip number six. Set yourself up for success with early proactive goals of care discussions and expectation setting around family communication. Let's listen to the spiel that Dr. Desai developed over the weeks working with new COVID admissions in New York City. Explain to them the the struggles we have with coronavirus very gently that, you know, we're here to support them. We're doing everything we can. We're giving them some medicines to help with inflammation, but it's not a cure. And we really um, will take it day by day. But sometimes if the respiratory condition is worse, gets worse, we need to know what you would like us to do. It's a hard balance to strike, not overwhelming them, but at the same time doing a good goals of care discussion. Some would argue they do aggressive goals of care discussions with everyone because you never know how rapidly someone's going to deteriorate on you and if their family knows their wishes. The next thing I always do is I talk about their family. I ask them who they live with, who's their family, 
um, who they want me to talk to, and that I promise them that I will always keep in touch with their family members um, to make sure they know how they're doing at all times and to reassure them that we're here for them when their family can't be. But as busy as we are, we can't lose sight of the family members at home and that in many cases, we are the only link to updates about their loved ones. So expectation setting is key. I tried to call family members um, once a day. And one thing that I tried to reassure them was, you know, I, I have your contact number. I can, I, I know I can reach you here. Um, if your family member's getting sick, which some people with this disease can do pretty rapidly, you would be the first person I call uh, after I doing the things I need to do to take care of your loved one. And so I want you to know that as much as I'm trying to update you each day, if you're not hearing from me, no news is good news because uh, it means that your loved one hasn't gotten worse. This is especially useful for the unexpected days where you may be inundated and not have the bandwidth to call all 10 or 20 family members on your list. So when you're not seeing patients or updating families, you are documenting. And I really appreciate, at least at the time of COVID, many are favoring tip number seven, maximizing documentation efficiency, which is being succinct and only writing the essentials. I think the most important thing in your note is to talk about how they're doing for that day so that people know whether they're improving, they're stable, they're worse, what their O2 requirements are. Um what relevant things from the physical exam are really important to know, which I think at this point in time, it's sad, but the physical exam is like the least part of our, of our um, encounter with the patients, um, what their code status is. If you've had goals of converse, care conversation, you need to have an ACP note. If they are DNR, DNI, there needs to be an emulst, and that you spoke to the family and updated them um, and that you attempted. I think it's been great that a lot of hospitals have actually kind of stepped up and they even created an easy dot phrase that, you know, pulls in from the chart, hashtag COVID-19, their day of hospitalization, their oxygen status, the oxygen device, the FiO2, the flow rate, and, and the medications they're on. Um, or even a dot phrase for the family being contacted and updated. You know, it's just a little bit less cognitive load, a tad bit less. The other uh, documentation load, in addition to that daily progress note, is the sign out. And thinking about what your nocturnist colleagues need to know. Especially when staffing is lower at night, that's something to think about. So just trying to support nocturnists as much as possible with helpful sign out. I found it helpful to leave information on the, the day of illness for them, you know, because it, it's helpful to know that when you're thinking about the, someone's clinical trajectory and whether they might get worse. So almost like someone on a chemotherapy uh, course saying, you know, this is day eight of their COVID infection based on the first day of symptoms. Uh, also leaving contact info um, in the sign out and any communication difficulties the patient has um, so that they can know if, if they want to talk with the patient, should they try calling the patient or should they just go right to the, the room and don the PPE? While you're finishing up with documentation for the day, remember tip number eight, review the EMR orders and optimize them to minimize exposure for yourself and your colleagues. Every patient that I had every day I, as, as a part of signing my note was also making sure that the meds time timings were aligned. So I would also tell my support staff that when you order the med, look at the previous meds and match the times so that they're not, nursing is not going in every two to three hours to give meds. If the patient was already getting a Q8 medication, then I ordered heparin sub-Q. 
so that I match the time and that everybody's not getting Lovenox because I feel like eventually we're going to run out of Lovenox. But if they were not getting a Q8 med, I gave them Lovenox and I matched that Lovenox time to another med that they might be receiving. So that is extremely important. Same thing with blood work and draws. And don't forget about things like those unnecessary QID finger sticks that sometimes get blown into order sets when you put your diabetic patient on insulin. So if I see their morning fasting sugars are controlled and they're not on steroids, then I might think about talking with nursing and decrease the frequency as much as possible. One of the really tricky things about COVID is that it can have an unpredictable clinical course. So when do you feel comfortable sending someone home? This leads us to tip number nine, review your hospital's criteria for discharging patients depending on where they're going and prepare your patients in terms of good isolation instructions and return precautions. So I base my discharges on obviously the patient clearly is clinically improving, um, stable vital signs, but they don't have to be on room air and they don't have to be a febrile. So our standard is if you're less three liters of O2 requirement or less, and respiratory stability. So you're not in distress. You can get up and go to the bathroom on the O2. You can, you're eating. Uh, we plan for those patients to go home with home O2. That being said, it's insurance driven. There's other factors involved. You know, they have to be able to have someone at home to accept the oxygen, but that's what we've been doing. And a lot of patients are going home with O2. They do not have to be febrile in my mind um, because we have people who are COVID positive, who have fever and cough, no respiratory symptoms, and they stay home. So the fever is not the, the, the reason to stay in the hospital unless you think it's for a different reason. But fever does matter depending on where they're going after the hospitalization. The other thing about subacute rehabs is that subacute rehabs are taking patients, but they want patients to be febrile for 72 hours before they take them. So fever matters for SAR discharges and not as much for home discharges. And discharges are also a contingent on home environment. So the family has to be able to um, accommodate the patient. They have to be able to isolate at home. They have to have some supports because people will need to get them things. So it's really important to coordinate the discharges with the family. And I actually, that's something I ask upfront what their home environment is like. How many people live in your house? How many rooms do you have? And are you able to, able to be in a room by yourself? Um, so that gives you a good sense of what you need. And then you can kind of gauge the social worker up front. Hey, this patient is not going to be able to home isolate. Can you see what we can do when the time comes that he's ready to go home? Because there have been some options of hotel discharges, but that really requires social work and care management coordination. I'm making a note to myself to add, asking about the home environment and the possibility to self-isolate to tip number six when I'm thinking about the things to talk about with patients upfront on admission, especially for situations like this. I had one patient who could, could go home, but he had himself and uh, four children and two adults living in the home, and they only had two rooms, two bedrooms. So two kids slept in each room, adults slept in the, they, but I enlisted social work and care management from day one because he gave me the sense that he wasn't going to be able to go home and isolate until either his, it met the need for isolation or we had to find an alternative solution. And on discharge, it's going to be a little bit of different discharge education, particularly around instructions for quarantining. It's actually multiple things. So one, if you are, if you are exposed to someone, so let's say you're the, let's start with the patient 
family members. So if the patient is coronavirus positive and the family was exposed to them, they have to quarantine for 14 days from the start, from the last time they saw the person. So that's them. Now the patient, if they're in hospital and they're ready to go home, they have to remain on home isolation if for multiple things. One, they have the only way to come off is they have to be f- seven days from their symptoms onset, and they have to have uh, fever-free for three days with no Tylenol. Those are the two. Like you have to have both. Um, and then I, if there's a cough present, they should still be wearing a mask, and their respiratory symptoms, cough symptoms, need to be markedly improved. So it's all of those things that get the patient off of home isolation. Another thing some of my friends who are actually hospitalists at Cornell have said is that they will add both in their discharge and admission spiels that symptoms from coronavirus can last more than 20 days sometimes. So just giving them a heads up, hey, you might not feel like yourself for a bit and giving them good return precautions. And most importantly, I still feel that with what's going on with the coronavirus, people are, we're going home and coming back with worsening respiratory symptoms. So it's very, I am very clear to patients and families that when they go home, if they have any change in their respiratory condition, that's significant or different or feels bad, they have to come back. Um, That's the big one for me that they have to know that, that they're not going to go home and they're not completely out of the woods. Um, But they, it's something they need to be proactive about for themselves to pay attention to their symptoms. Uh, It would be great if all our patients could be sent home with pulse socks so they could better monitor themselves. Hey, maybe that'll be the next update for the Apple Watch. (laughs) I hope so. Maybe if they're listening, they'll give us like a 10% cut of of whatever they make from the the new... (laughs) Yes. But I think uh, just giving them good return precautions is, I think, particularly important because we do have a bunch of patients that get admitted early on in their symptom course, say like on day three, and they're quote unquote ready to go home on day five. But it's hard to know what their trajectory is going to be. Are they going to be one of those people that worsens on day eight? They might, they might not. Um, Do you keep them in the hospital? Uh, Hard decisions. I think the other thing to keep in mind is when you are sending these patients home, in addition to doing good education, is to think about how weak they might be and that they might not be able to pick up their meds. Some hospitals are being really proactive about this. One thing was um, we we don't routinely do this for all our patients. It's been more of kind of a pilot, but uh, bringing uh, discharge medications to the patient's room, we call it meds to beds. Um, That's not what we usually do. We usually have all patients go to the discharge pharmacy in our hospital to pick up their medications. But especially for patients with COVID, we don't really want them or their family members traveling unnecessarily in our hospital. So Uh, delivering all the discharge meds to patients was one thing we did. And while so much of our energy these days is rightfully focused on just getting through our tasks, tip number 10 is to be mindful to protect our own well-being. One, we have to stay healthy. So I make sure I eat. I make sure I drink water. These all seem like silly things, but they're actually really important. Um, I am very vigilant about hand hygiene and other things. This is really important to protect yourself and the staff around you. I also, I, we didn't really talk about how hard it is um, in the first couple of days that you're on this service. And what's the was the hardest for me was watching these patients in a room, isolated, no family, in distress and suffering. So I think that was for me 
the hardest thing to wrap my head around. And then talking to their families and seeing how distressed they are because they they can't see them or they can't talk to them or their phone died and they can't reach them. So it's that is really the part that I think took the biggest toll on me. And it's really healthy to take a mental inventory of the things that drain you and to reach out to colleagues or friends to help process these crazy times. And with that, we'll leave you with some closing thoughts. I do believe that it's very overwhelming in the beginning. And I I do want to thank, I really want to thank the people who are coming out of their comfortable zones and making themselves uncomfortable in this environment when it's already tough for the people who do this every day that I feel so grateful and thankful to them um, for helping us. Like I really do. And something that's easy for everyone to forget, even the seasoned hospitalists. It is hard for us to ask for help as physicians sometimes, but you need to ask for help in this situation. Like everybody, some, some things are changing every day. Policies are changing, PPE is changing, like where you get things is changing and what's available is changing. So I think you should utilize everyone that's there to help you and ask for help because that's the only way we're going to all get through this is if we get through this together. Word. (laughs) And that is a wrap for today's episode. Tweet us, send us a comment on our website page or on our Instagram or Facebook page. If you want to add any of your own tips, let's all continue learning from each other. Thank you to Dr. Kaba Wang from University of Minnesota for the accompanying graphic, Dr. Becky McAllister, Dr. Rebecca Berger for their input on this episode, to Harit Shah for editing this very quickly on a Friday night, and thanks to you. Look out for more episodes on goals of care discussions and advanced care planning in the coming week, and let us know if there's anything else you'd like us to cover. If you found this episode helpful, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And as always, we are open to constructive feedback. So send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Take care. Go Badgers. <laughs> did I do the Go Badgers? Correctly? You did. You, you did. You did Go Badgers. Then it's time to actually see your patients and put on that protective, what does it stand for? PPE? Protective? Personal protective equipment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> that second P is totally unnecessary. <laughs> Can we all agree about that? Yeah.